0: Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to increase the pre-implementation planning to sustainment rate to 16.5%. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I talk with Lisa Saldana about her work developing measures of implementation stages and costs, her fascinating and powerful data repository, and we quiz her on beautiful Eugene, Oregon. You know, I've always been impressed with Lisa's work, but after this interview I left believing that she is doing some of the most interesting and most important research in implementation science today. Listen in and study up on her work, and I think you'll agree. Without further ado, let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Pullman. I'm here with co-host Kevin King. Hey, everyone. And we are here talking today with Lisa Saldana. Lisa received her doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Missouri-Columbia in 2003 and is active in the development, evaluation, and implementation of EBPs. She is a senior research scientist and the incoming research director of the Oregon branch of Chestnut Health Systems Lighthouse Institute and is the associate director of the National Lighthouse Institute. Lisa, it's so good to have you on the show. I think the last time that I saw you, you were playing Dungeons and Dragons at Cirque, Isn't that right? (laughs)
1: it's so nice to see you thanks for having me as well um dungeons and dragons at cirque i was probably doing something some mischief at cirque so (laughs) how
0: have you been what have you been up to
1: um you know trying to enjoy the summer uh they're very gratefully we have not been hit and i'm sorry for part of the country that has been um with the smoke and so it's been really nice to be outside get outside get some time with the dog and um, yeah, enjoying enjoying the weather here.
0: Well, that's great. You're in Eugene, Oregon, right? So I, right. Uh, I always think of Eugene as having like, you know, really beautiful, pristine weather, a lot like Seattle in the summer for sure.
1: Yeah, no, we've been really fortunate this summer. I think you probably know the last few summers where we were not as much so. So really enjoying it this year. Yeah, and getting out there.
2: Nice. It's always nice to enjoy the sunshine and the the heat and then sort of like dry warmth before the smoke <laughs> comes in because invariably every year at some point in the Pacific Northwest, the smoke comes in. Uh, like, as you said, as the, the rest of the country has been experiencing on and off all summer. Um, well, Lisa, maybe, uh, we could start by just telling us a little bit about how your career and how you found yourself to be where you are sort of now transitioning this new, exciting job.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Gosh, so I, I don't know that my the beginning of my implementation science career is that different from a lot of our colleagues and friends and all the people that are doing such amazing work out there. Um, I um, originally um, wanted to be, and I still am, um, an intervention developer. And so when I went to graduate school, really what I was doing is I was looking um, to try and hope to develop some evidence-based practices and some innovations in particular to um, help kids and families involved in the child welfare system. At that point in time, there was not a lot and there still is not a lot in the grand scheme of things of evidence-based work um, happening in that space. So my intention was and um, has always been to really help to create some um, achievable um, and feasible interventions that um, families could easily access. And so I went to graduate school to do that and um, start, I learned a lot of really, really great things from my mentor there, who was Lizette Peterson, um, around intervention development and particularly in the prevention space. But then, once I graduated um, and sort of got out of that that really ac- um, academic focused um, um, environment, I it didn't take very long to realize that there are so many of these um, great innovations that have been created by really, really smart and well-intentioned and motivated individuals, um, but then those interventions don't really um, ever take off or or actually get into the hands of the consumers and the families, And in the case of the work that I do, that really need to achieve that. I... um, had the really great fortune of having a conversation with John Landsberg, who I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. Um, John is one of the um, sort of folks that was on the cutting edge of thinking about implementation science, particularly when it comes to children's mental health. And in so doing, um, he really encouraged me to think about, um, you know, at that time, that is when IRI Implementation Research Institute was getting off the ground. So we had folks like Enola Proctor, Greg Aarons, Brian Mittman, and John, um, and, and others, um, um, putting their heads together to sort of think about what would it look like to create a training program um, focused on implementation. And he really encouraged me to take advantage of the fact that these um Really great minds were getting together to do that. And so um, I fortunately took his advice and um, sought that opportunity out. And that's really what launched my implementation science career was um, I was already doing implementation work, but didn't have a network of folks to really help to um, support the work I was doing, bounce ideas off of. And I think you guys know, as the folks that are running this um, really cool podcast, that implementation science, you know, it sort of skirts around services research, sort of skirts around intervention research. So other areas where I um, had the fortune of having expertise and really strong mentorship, but really pulling that all together to be able to create what I think we now know are some really um, um, consistently used standardized um, implementation methods.
2: I really like that framework. That's really striking to me that... um the idea that sort of you know we that implementation science pulls together threads from lots of different disciplines like you said from health services from intervention and i also like how you frame it as it comes from a place of need right you came out uh of your training like a lot of us trained in clinical psychology as an interventionist right either as you know uh, we're all at least trained to be to deliver interventions and some of us are trained to create them and 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 then you have this experience which i think a lot of people have when they go into practice too, right? Of going out and say, okay, when I have this real person sitting across from me and I'm not in a training clinic and they're not pre-screened to meet my, you know, the specific disorder that I'm trying to treat and add this protocol to, what do I actually do? But you're thinking of that same, how do I deal with this person in front of me? And you're thinking, how do I deal with this system in front of me and this system of people? I I just love that description of like how it... the field and even being around early on sort of allowed you to network and pull expertise from a lot of different areas. I, I guess some, you know, that leads to a question of how do you feel like the from those early days uh, in your career? What do you feel like the le- what do you feel some lessons that you and or maybe the field has broadly learned about how to encourage crosstalk and how to sort of pull those threads together more efficiently?
1: Oh, that's a really really interesting question. Um- well, I mean, I think something that we all know, right, partnerships and relationships are really important and I think critical in this field. This is not a solo field. Like if folks are interested in really like working individually, um, there are, of course, roles in implementation science where um, where that little niche market could be useful, but it's a team science. This is like an all hands on deck um, sort, of, um, sort of approach to doing the work. And so I think some of the lessons learned are... Um, around pulling those different threads are we don't need to reinvent the wheel all of the time for every single, um, every single new sort of branch of a field. I do think, I don't know that everybody in the IS world would agree with me on this, but I do think that there were some places early on where we, um, were at risk for doing that for, um, sort of recreating some of the same things that other fields, um, already, uh, had um, maybe not mastered, but um, but at least had some you know made some really good inroads on. And I do think that there were some points along the way and different people along the way that have pulled us from doing that. Um, I do think that there are ways that we have learned about rigor and efficiency and sort of um, a rapid pace that we've learned more from the medical side of medical fields, that we've been able to pull into the IS field that has been incredibly important. One of the key things that I was hearing early on, again, not rocket science and things that we all know, but some of the things that we were doing when the implementation science field, by trying to bring that scientific rigor to the process, what we were also doing is um, we were maybe making things more protracted than they needed to be. Mm. Um, And we were um, not necessarily recognizing. And again, this is not everybody. So please, whoever's listening to this, please don't think this is everybody. I know that my team at least fell at risk sometimes of not being as responsive to the communities and to Mm -hmm. our um, constituents who are actually in need of whatever this thing is that we're trying to implement. And so- What has been really useful, I think, is to see how we can bring those efficiencies, like I said, and the use of resources, um, how we can be effective in our use of resources to be able to maintain rigor and yet respond more rapidly than I know at least we certainly have in the intervention development field. And I think in the services research field, I think that there are real opportunities there in the IS world for us to be more responsive.
2: Uh, man, I don't know, Lisa. I, I've always been of the opinion that science uh, advances in five-year increments. I don't know why five years just <laughs> seems like a convenient number. Uh, maybe it's related to the r one funding so cycle. I was going to say
1: um, <laughs> maybe the funding cycle. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Every you know every grant, every longitudinal study ever is we study people for four to five years, and we're like I wonder why that is. Um, no, I, I like I, I really appreciate that framing of uh, like how do you balance rigor uh with other important factors like you know actually serving the community that you need and that seems to also reflect your value of like let's establish relationships and that's that relationships both with the community and the people who you know are the end users of the intervention and benefit from it but also from the other scientists in the field
1: yes yep that's right yeah
0: highlights for me a real need for uh for implementation science to incorporate more methods from community-based participatory research, participatory mm-hmm. action research, program evaluation, I've been doing this work for a long time, and that those are all more from the side of um, you know involving community members in determining the stake of uh, and the outcomes in implementation research, but also I guess on the other side, really borrowing a lot from replication science and the learnings that have been happening in social psychology so uh, i lo- I love the idea of, of of balancing um balancing rigor and practice and that really is the nexus of or should be the, in my opinion the nexus of where implementation science should be now one of the tools that uh you've created that i think has had a, a really large impact on the field and in helping uh, stakeholders, whether they are researchers or implementers or community members, understand the uh, process with which um, uh, implementations occur. Is the stages of implementation completion measure? I'm uh, wondering if you could just kind of describe that for our uh, for our listeners that haven't heard of it before. What is it? Why is it useful? And um, yeah,
1: yeah, okay. So this seems like a simple question, Michael, and I could go on and on. I could I could talk for days about this. So the stages of implementation completion of the SIC um, is a tool that I think it's super fun. Sometimes I describe it to people as the nerdy part of of my job, because it's not something where we're going out into communities. In fact, what we are doing is we are working with other folks who are implementers who want to get something um, implemented, sometimes small scale. Sometimes folks are coming into this with the idea that we want to go big and we want to scale up. But what the SIC is, is it started out as a, basically a tracking tool, a tracking measure for us to be able to systematically um, assess uh, what is necessary to be able to implement um, and in this case, evidence-based practice. Um, and so originally this was designed as part of um, a head-to-head trial between two different um, implementation, blended implementation approaches. Um, or there are many different steps that, um, that were necessary to implement a single evidence-based practice. Uh, so this was part of an R01. Um, Patty Chamberlain was the PI of that, of that R01. And I had the really good and great fortune of being, um, uh, sort of tasked with developing this measure. My dissertation was on measurement development and so I had some experience there. And so this is sort of my my first big big implementation science task was to try and figure out how do we measure implementation process. So and so doing, starting off basically by observing, right? Like I am a behavioral psychologist by training. And so um, I like to observe and, and understand behaviors before we operate um, or operationalize anything. And so being able to see whether the different who are the who are the different actors, what are the different strategies, what are the different steps, how long does it take um, for folks to really kind of just develop a recipe or a plan to be able to get some sort of an inter- intervention into again the hands of the consumers, which is our which is our ultimate goal. And so in doing that, we created the sick and the sick um, started off as I believe we started off with. 16 stages, then we went to 14 stages, then we went to 12 stages, and ultimately through our psychometric analyses, um, we landed on eight stages. Those eight stages um, really help think about progressing from engaging with an intervention or innovation. So deciding like, is this the right fit for us? And then moving through a process through the development of assuming that we say, yes, we do want to move forward with implementation. Then we need to, you know, decide, is that implementation going to be feasible in our particular context? Then we need to see like, what does it take to get ready? Like, what are all the different steps that we want to take to build the infrastructure? And then from there, obviously, we want to identify our clients. We want to hire our client or I'm sorry, clinicians, um, our staff. We want to be able to hire them or assign them, allocate them, whatever that might be, depending on your circumstances and train them. Um, We want to get our fidelity monitoring systems in place. And then after all those things are done, then we can think about launching our program and starting to actually see clients prior to the work with the sick oftentimes folks begin their work with, I want to serve a client. And so all of that build up, that infrastructure, that assessment of feasibility, getting folks ready, those were things that people acknowledged and sort of nodded their head to like, okay, the agency is going to have to get ready. And then then they'll start working with us and we will launch the program. What the SIC really did is, um, I guess I should go on to say there are a few more stages after launch. So then you launch, and then, you, um, then we do ongoing monitoring of um, quality through fidelity monitoring. And then we um, achieve our, our um, competency so that we can go into sustainment and, and meet our sustainment goals. So there are eight stages overall. But prior to this, um, where I was going before is folks really started about like, I'm interested in launching the program, but not what does it take to actually build the infrastructure, identify the resources, have things in place. For, um, for that launch um, point. Again, the SIC was built as a tracking tool. So first, all we were doing is tracking. What did it take to get these programs in place? Well, as we were doing that, we're like, there's some consistency to what needs to be done to be able to get these things in place. I had the really good fortune after that first that first grant where we developed this to then receive um, some um, independent R01 funding where I was able to develop a full SIC team. We were able to then um, understand the scoring behind all of this, um, come up with validation protocols and really grow the sick to be more than a tracking measure but now instead to be a, a measurement tool we had psychometric properties around that we um we have you know like again sort of training um training processes around um, how to implement and use the sick and then as if that wasn't great enough for us to be able to 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 now measure implementation and not just track implementation, because there was such a dearth in the field and there was such a need for a measure like this, we, I just feel so privileged and thankful to all of my colleagues worldwide who said, let's go ahead and and start using this tool as well. Because what that allowed us to do then is to develop a data repository of different implementations that have taken place around a whole range of different types of innovations and interventions. Because we have that repository, that then has grown the sick to be what Michael and um, Kevin I think you guys think of the sick being today which is more of a predictive tool and we have like predictive algorithms underneath it we can now use it to sort of guide and provide um, um, prospective um, direction towards what would we recommend for a successful implementation process so the sick is not just a, it's it, I know you asked a simple question but it has really morphed over time in a way that it now can be used in several different ways. Some people still want to use it simply as a tracking tool. Some people want to use it simply as a measure, but a lot of folks are now using it more prospectively to guide where are their um, pain points in their implementation process, being able to identify and predict where we're going to have some difficulties being able to, you know, like Um, I don't know, launch that program. And once we do, being able to help keep our agencies or our sites on course so that we actually do get to sustainment. And we have seen that by doing that, we are are increasing sustainment rates um, significantly for agencies that do use that process.
0: That is so cool. So, so cool. So you have this uh, system-wide measure that shows that these stages of implementation are that people can use to track their stages of implementation, and you're able to actually then h- harness that data to examine uh, which elements may be more associated with implementation or not. Right. And, you know, it does go back to like, the foundation of implementation science is this kind of oft-sided um, claim that most implementation efforts fail right? You see yes. that cited all the time. Now, if you go back and, and track that original citation, the original citation doesn't exactly say that. <laughs> it's a hard citation to dig up. And the evidence for it is actually- And it's
1: pretty... 14%. Don't forget the 14% <laughs> is also very important. Yep. Well, the
0: evidence for it is actually fa- fairly weak, but no longer because you have, for at least for people using this measure, you can actually track people uh, people's implementation success. In fact, you have a paper that just came out with uh, Zoe Alley as a uh, lead author- I'd love if you could talk about that a little bit, that's the uh, relative value of pre implementation stages for successful implementation of evidence informed programs. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what you found there.
1: Because yeah, uh, no, I'm
0: sorry, because my assumption is that that data f- was pulled from your tracking system, correct?
1: You are absolutely correct. That's right. And I also, before we go there, I just want to um, also do a little um, shameless plug for another um, junior person who's been working with me. His name's Dylan Wong. And two years ago, or was it, I should look up the citation before I start speaking, um, but um, he uh, actually published a paper from that repository as well because the data was pulled at a different time, slightly different end than the paper you're talking about with Zoe as the as the lead author. But that's a paper where he looks at sustainment rates and looks at sustainment. And so to your point, he did empirically show that the majority of implementations across this repository, they do unfortunately not make it. Um, and so, and, and that happens both in terms of getting to launch, but then even those that do launch, those that make it to launch have a much, much greater chance of making it to sustainment. But only, and then this feeds into the alley paper, only if they've done a good quality job with pre-implementation. So-, so just paper, to, you're, yeah. Can I just clarify that
2: then, Lisa? Of course, yeah. That seems to imply that like everybody who contributed data to this re- repository
1: is already
2: yes. focused on implementation, right? They're implementation right. scientists or it. So you have- you know, you already have a Berkson's bias here and that you have an incredibly biased sample.
1: That is absolutely right.
2: Which, I mean, just, you know, it, it, which is then implying that if you're saying, okay, from these data, from people who But care, even
1: from those, yes.
2: Right. So just, the, I mean, just I, the inference to me then is that in the real world, across all sorts of agencies and all sorts of settings that, you know, if we assume that people who contribute data to this repository are a committed minority, of, of people interested in, in, in doing things well and implementing to the best of the ability, that suggests that an w- even higher percentage of programs that people set out to implement end up failing because they're I not think even thinking about implementation. That's just a little depressing to think about.
1: That is a little depressing. Um, and I think that you're right. Um, I think that that's probably a hypothesis that would be supported if we were able to, to dig into that. But I think where we have hope Um, So let's not get hung up on, it is depressing, but I think that there there are lots of opportunities for hope and that sort of feeds into Michael's question in terms of the paper that Zoe Alley is first author on. Um, And so in that paper, what we were able to show is that, um, again, we can think of it on the flip side of being depressing, or we can think of it on the the side of we've got information now, empirical um, um, evidence. That really shows us what are the key parts of the implementation process that are necessary to support a program and sustainment. And so one of the things that came out of that paper, that paper was showing um, anybody who who saw it might recognize the graphs. Those are graphs that we've been presenting on for a very, very long time and kept expecting the graphs were going to change as we got more data. So we didn't want to publish it. Right. But it's like, nope, it's very, very consistent findings. And so the consistent um, finding is that each of those pre-implementation stages, so the engagement process, the assessment and consideration of feasibility, and the readiness planning stage. Each of those are distinct stages. So yes, we do talk about pre-implementation, but each of those add their own independent value to the implementation process. One of the other things that I think is um, striking about that um, information is the engagement part, which is what we as a field do less so now but still i think do unless you are one of the people you're talking about who are really motivated and dedicated to implementation. Oftentimes what do we do? We build this program, we tell people about the program, we tell people this program is the program for you. Yep, you've got this problem. This this is we're going to be able to to help you do that. And yet at the same time, the program then doesn't really doesn't really take off. One of the things that the data in that paper shows is engagement and information alone does not get us to sustainment. It might get us to launch. It's not going to get us to the point where, where we need to sustain. It often doesn't get us to launch though, either. If we look at feasibility and like we're assessing whether or not something is feasible, that increases our chance that yes, we are going to get a sustainable program, but it's the, really that readiness planning phase. And we all hear, I mean, gosh, we talk about readiness planning, like ad nauseum, right? So I really think I worry that because we talk about readiness planning ad nauseum, it has now become maybe a watered down version of what it needs to be. And what we've really shown empirically here is that there are some key um, readiness activities that if done and if done well, and done at a good pace, because part of what the sick does that I didn't really talk about is measured timing, and done at a good pace, that sets the stage for a sustainable program. What it also sets the stage for is a program being able to weather challenges that are, of course, going to happen in the implementation process. So if we have, um, at its most simple simple term, if we have two agencies And both agencies launch. They both are serving serving the target population. One agency has a really strong pre-implementation and one agency does not. The agency that does not has a much less likely chance of developing a program that's going to sustain into the future. But not only that, it has a, a a less likely um, opportunity that when there are challenges along the way, that they're gonna be able to handle them. And that's what we see is that it's pretty remarkable when we see again, and the paper doesn't go into this in that much detail, but we have instances where we have agencies or sites or um, circumstances where you're like, oh my God, they are tanking and they are tanking really quickly. But if you look back and they have a strong pre-implementation they are able to write the course again and get back on track. Whereas those that don't have that strong pre-implementation, if things like fundings getting pulled, you have a lot of staff turnover, you have COVID, you have like all these different um, sort of outer context factors. Without a strong pre-implementation, those sites don't don't maintain.
0: Oh, that's so fascinating. I think that. Well, the, the byline for that implementation science podcast is that we are reducing the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years, but I think we might need to change it to
1: uh,
0: increasing the pre implementation yes. to sustainment uptake to 16 and a half percent. We'll yeah. get it up. We'll get up two, two percentage points, maybe. Really, really cool. I wonder too are you finding that, are you able to really look at whether there are sort of different patterns or clusters and sort of types of implementation like are there because I I imagine there's different kind of approaches that organizations take where they may leave certain strategies behind or not not consider them uh, and that there may be sort of clusters and then maybe sort of more effective clusters than others or is it too is it too early for this
1: um, I think, yes, the short answer is, yes, we are looking at those things, and we are, um I don't know that I would, you know say with with one hundred percent confidence, not that I would ever say anything with hundred percent. but um, but I wouldn't say um, that we've got that figured out. But absolutely, what comes out of that paper is that there is variation amongst the types that one, the types of programs and what that what their implementation process looks like. So the type of EBP that is being implemented, we absolutely know that the location and the site and the context influences what those processes look like. We have what's called the universal SIC, which is a set of 46 items that we sort of universally think are, are needed regardless of what is being implemented and regardless in what context. Even within those 46 items, Um, When we go to some lower resource countries or we're, we're working with different types of innovations, some of those 46 items are not always completely applicable, but there are other implementations that are far more complex. And so we have more and more in what I've been having a lot of fun with lately. This is where the nerdy fun part comes in. Um, I've been having a lot of fun is really looking at these multi-system, multi-layer, multi-complex um, implementations. And so when we're working with, you have to go into a state first and then go into a particular system within that state. And then that state, go, you know, like that system has different maybe units or bodies within it. And then you have to go down to, I um, mean, you know, like a county level and then like agencies within that county. So where we're really, layering multiple implementations on top of one another to get to our, our major implementation of, you know, whatever it happens to be like. So like in, in my case, it might be an intervention across different counties with different child welfare agencies, but in order to get there, that pre-implementation process is so much longer than what we see when we're just, um, when we're just sicking uh, a single intervention And part of that is because we are really doing a sick on top of a sick on top of a sick on top of a sick, right? And so what we do not know yet, but what I'm fascinated by is what it looks like we're kind of finding is that when we um, layer these six on top of each other, that although the overall process is is much longer, um, depending on what it is we're implementing, each of those micro six that are layered on top of each other. Though the timing um, and uh, the the scores, I guess the six scores, those are not really showing as much variation as I might have thought. So I think that it's that unimplementation process again. Although the grand the grand thing might require seven implementation processes, like in order to get the whole thing, but each individual um, process does seem to still have some systemization to it that I'm finding really fascinating and maybe a year from now can come back and, and talk to you guys as we as we learn more about that.
2: one of the things least that's striking me as I'm hearing this now uh, my background is in clinical psychology and in substance use research um and mm-hmm. i I got a lot of training in motivational interviewing so a lot of yes. this stages of implementation completion. The thing I'm going to ask you about, it just reminds me a lot of yes. what, how we think about behavior change in general, right? That you sort of want to, um, that, that people before they change a behavior, they think about it a lot, they're ambivalent, they do a lot of preparatory work and that stuff, that preparatory work is important towards showing, you know, is important for people to effectively change, right? They have to know what's going to work for them. They have to know their specific barriers or specific strategies. We can't just hand somebody a diet plan or an exercise change plan or a, you know, quit smoking plan and just expect it to work. Everything has to be ideographic and and um to them, idiosyncratic to them. One of the things I, I'd like to hear more about is something that's also we think a lot about when we think about individual behavior change is not only do people, you know, people change because they see benefits, but whenever they make a change, they also see costs. Right. So with somebody's you know changing their diet or changing a substance use behavior you know they lose something from that and and the the um the uh saying that we have sort of in, in the motivational interviewing framework is um or the framework i guess we have is that people are ambivalent right and people if people are not changing there's a good reason why not so you have this measure the coins or the cost of Im- implementing new strategies measure tell us Tell us about it. Like, how is it used? So, so why is this useful? Give us sort of our, our listeners an introduction to this this measure and this where it comes from and the ideas. Of
1: it. Sure. So first of all, Kevin, I just want to say, thank you. You have just made my day and made me so happy because the way that you just described implementation and implementation process change is exactly the way I think about it. I am a behavioral psychologist by training. And that is, um, I absolutely think about this in terms of organizational behavior mm-hmm. and in terms of, um, organizational cost for organizational behavior. So you could not have teed this up more, more you know, better, Coins. So the cost of implementing new strategies actually does, um, it's an adjunct to the SIC. And so um, as I mentioned before, the SIC is this eight stage tool where we operationalize the implementation process. Um, what I didn't go into is within each of those eight stages are a number of strategies that are um, tailored specifically to the thing that we are trying to implement right and so um, it might be that we have to hire a supervisor for uh, you know for one we might say that we're hiring a supervisor and another they might use the word boss and so um, so we we um, come up with we, we customize it to whatever the intervention is. But the idea is within each of those eight stages, there are these activities, each of those activities to perform those activities have some level of costs to them. So you pointed out some of them, like there, there are some direct costs, um, actual like fixed fees that need to go into something. Let's say I have to, um, all of my interventions are um, video recorded. And so I need to install cameras in all of my treatment rooms and I need to set up some sort of a networking. So there's a direct cost to that. But then there's also the cost of um, the human time that it takes to do something. And if you are an executive director of an agency and you are bringing in um, a new evidence-based practice, your time's already paid for, right? You're, you, you've got your full on a full-time salary. But what we want to understand is what, is what are the costs that are being that you could be doing something else with that time. So what is, what is the cost that you are putting forth um, towards this particular implementation? In addition, what oftentimes we find gets overlooked is non-dollared, but yet resource personnel costs. A lot, when we go into like our mom and pop shops and we go into our smaller agencies, even our larger agencies, a lot of what is done in that initial building, the infrastructure, that pre-implementation, um, um, phase that oftentimes gets overlooked that is done a lot of times by volunteers. Those are people who are volunteering their time. And so if we were to go out and want to replicate this in another community, and I tell you that it only costs five bucks because I only had to like go get one cord to plug in my already existing network. Well, that's absolutely not gonna tell you the actual cost to implement this. So what we are oftentimes looking for is we're looking for the cost of replication to be able to implement something when we think of coins. So what we're looking at is we're looking at labor costs, we're looking at, um, um, even if there aren't, uh, again, dollars associated with it, but number of hours that are spent, Who are, who are the most optimal people to spend those hours? Um, And then we are looking at, of course, direct costs and and sort of fixed costs that come along with um, implementing any sort of evidence-based practice. What we do is we're able to do that. We're using the COINS approach, similar to SICK, over this, over the time of um, building this evidence-based practice. A lot of times when people say, and this is what we heard. So this coins was built from a wealth of um, uh, uh, qualitative information that we learned um, after talking to a bunch of leaders who had implemented in different contexts. And what they said is that it was frustrating to them is that at the outset, they're told some specific things. You're gonna need this number of people. You're gonna need this amount of dollars. It's gonna take this amount of time. They would pony that up and then poof, everybody just disappears. And now they're working with the frontline clinicians that are doing the intervention. But the people who like made the decision to make this investment oftentimes are left out of the process at that point. Using coins allows us to be able to map out how these resources are used over the course of the implementation process and feed that implementation, I mean, sorry, feed that information back to those decision makers so that they can see, are we using our resources, not like in one big, you know, like one big purchase, but over time, how are we developing our capacity? How are we growing um, our referral base? How and what is the resource that it takes to do those sorts of implementation activities? Because I might want to use that again later for something else I'm implementing. What it also does is it allows the smaller agencies or less well-funded agencies to be able to see that implementing something is achievable. I oftentimes think back, this was some years back, but uh, I had a state leader call me and say, hey, what do you think about doing XYZ intervention? Um, We really wanna do the evidence-based one, but the evidence-based one's too expensive. So we're we're thinking about doing this other non-evidence-based practice. And it struck me that that decision maker was making their decision based purely off of some sort of market value price that somebody had told them. The actual cost to develop and grow and do their own thing would be so much higher than doing something that was already pre-packaged. It's not gonna be cheaper if you are doing something that is not evidence-based. And in fact, now you are spending resources on something that we don't even know if it's gonna work, right? And so it could be that those resources are lost entirely. So Coins allows the decision-maker to see how how their implementation costs and resources are being used over time to be able to make decisions over time and in their future when they want to replicate something. It's also lets them say like, okay, we don't have the the budget for the full deal. You told me this is going to cost me $300,000. I don't have $300,000. But now that I can see the phasic way in which we're going to approach this, um, we have $80,000 for this year. And that's how much it's going to cost for me to do these two phases or stages of the implementation process. And now if I we can go ahead and budget another 40,000 to do those next two stages. So it makes implementation not only more achievable, but it um, helps people sort of like outline with clear expectations, what is going to be demanded, not just from their their money, but also from the number of hours and personnel costs.
2: It's, I, I love this because it's so, it brings such a real world perspective um, or a grounded perspective that how these programs actually get off the ground and how change actually happens, like you said, at, at an organizational level, right? And and all of us know, I think from personal experience, that if, I, if we just set a goal in mind, like, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to watch less TV. I'm going to drink less beer at night. I'm going to exercise more. Just those vague Sort of self change goals, they just, they're not likely to happen. And and the parallel here is this state leader saying, well, I'm going to either buy, you know, this package of TFCBT or we're going to make our own intervention and we're going to develop it ourselves. And look, this one's cheaper than this other. And what I'm just so impressed by the work you're doing, because you're sort of the person saying, okay, wait, let's hold on. (laughs) Let's think about all of this realistically, both with think about how do we, you know, everything, and let's think about all of the things that lead up to successful sustainment, both how do we do all of the planning phase as well, How do we think about, as we're going through all those planning phases, how do we think about what are not only what's it going to take, but how is this costing us? And again, it's so important to be thinking, how does this cost us not just in terms of money, as our economics colleagues would like us to reduce everything to, and I say that partly sarcastically, but also what are the other costs? What are the personnel costs? What are the emotional costs of trying something new? What are the sort of, you know, like you said, the cost of the volunteer time to do this and sort of helping people think through and then as you've said over and over and over in this interview how are the how do we think about these things as a process over time this isn't a one shot deal that if we really want to take this seriously you keep emphasizing like we really have to be thinking about this over time and it just seems to me like such a wonderful resource for people that you've been doing this work outlining, you and your colleagues outlining like, hey, to have this stuff be successful, we need to think about these as a process that unfolds over time that has to be sort of thoughtful and careful and really think about you know, all the things we have to do to, to set ourselves up for success.
1: Yeah, really nice summary. Thank you. Yeah, that's you, you. You said it much faster than I did. See efficiency.
2: <laughs> I'm using all of my motivational interviewing skills. I believe that's that. That was a good example of a summary statement. If anybody out there wants to code me on a <laughs>
0: Uh, let's talk about some of those intangible costs. So, and is the coins. I don't know if the coins is able to actually capture some of those. And I'm specifically thinking about just like the, the emotional costs that come up, just the costs of either inertia or changing momentum, right? Somebody's doing one thing, maybe they need to de-implement that thing in order to do another thing. The sort of... Um, social and political capital that's necessary to expend Mm. in order to get people on board for you know leaders to sort of um get get shift their attitudes uh to get them to do something uh is this something that the coins can can track in some way or are are you able to begin to think about some of these intangible costs in a way that can help decision makers uh, make better decisions
1: yeah, it's a great question. Unfortunately, my answer is no. Uh, the coins itself is really focused on number of hours and number of dollars. It's 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 really focused on on that. That being said, for the sick, Michael, I know this is not what you're asking me about, but we do have um, a module that is our outer context module. The outer context module allows us to be able to pinpoint in the implementation process when something happens that might be one of these more intangibles that you're talking about. So we have somebody who, um, I don't know, is uh, we're relying on a system leader and that system leader is feeling really burnt out right now and took a two month leave of absence or something. So when we have those, so there's still, it's not quite as intangible as you're talking about because we, we wanna be able to put some brackets around it, some like put some parameters around it. But if we're able to say that something started in May and like lasted until July, um, that's just an example, um, it could it can, things sometimes start and they never end. We can, we have a way of putting that within the six system as an outer context factor. And we track that along with the implementation process so that we see the impact that that then has on things like the amount of time, right? And so I wouldn't be able to say there's a particular individual who's really motivated and increasing the inertia like you're talking about, but I would be able to say if somebody came on the outside and started doing motivational interviewing with that particular individual to help increase their momentum and the inertia and then the impact that that has on the implementation does that make sense
0: yeah that totally makes sense totally makes sense all right well we're going to do a little bit of a hard shift we uh there's been a lot of buzz lately on our podcast about the paper that you wrote with uh Renad Betis and um, yeah um,
1: Renad and Rachel Shelton
0: Thank you. Yes, Rachel Shelton. Yeah. And in in this paper, you really are encouraged. It's a very short paper, quick read. You're encouraging the field to uh, jump straight into eff- effectiveness trials and implementation trials for uh, mental health evidence based practices, in particular in situations where safety is not a not a concern. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of curious if we could talk about this paper a little bit because people have been talking about it so much. What prompted you to write this paper, and what do you what do you hope to achieve?
1: Oh gosh! Well, I will say what prompted us to write the paper. This has been a paper in the making for years, as many papers are. This is really something that we have all believed in for a long time, and I think is it's it's first of all it's fun, right? It's fun. It's fun to get to write with your friends and your colleagues, and and both Rachel and Renad are are very very dear friends and colleagues. I um, respect them um, tremendously in the work that they do, and in our um sort of you know individual conversations so many of us had been talking a lot about like what you had mentioned before that 17 year um you know like pipeline that we think about for implementation and wanting to reduce that to more than 16 and a half we want to we want to reduce it even even less than that and that in some ways, because circling back to what Kevin was talking about, like research happening in these five-year cycles with, you know, somewhat dependent on, um, on projects and grant really, if we're going to reduce that timeline from 17 years, we need to think about doing our science differently. And we need to think about how much, like, who made this, the, these rules, right? Like who sort of like made the rules that we go from pilot first to then efficacy to then effect. there are very good reasons why we need to do that, particularly when we think about um, uh, clinical trials and like drug pharmaceutical trials, like you had mentioned, Michael, where safety is a concern, but where safety isn't a concern um, you know, we've been really fortunate with the hybrid trial designs that have come out in um, you know, this last decade where we can start to consider clinical effectiveness at the same time that we are considering implementation effectiveness. And so if we pilot something and we have a good sense that, um, it's not going to do harm. And in fact, in some situations, uh anything is better than nothing, not always the case, but sometimes the case, right? So when we have these types of um, interventions, rather than seeing how does this intervention hold up in a really rigorous controlled environment where we are never going to actually deliver it that way in the real world, how about skipping forward and seeing what is it like to deliver it In the conditions in which it's going to be delivered. If something is effective in that more sterile rigor environment, that's still not helping us achieve our goal of being able to deliver something um, and increase adoption rates or or increase rates of somebody, you know, getting getting the jab in the arm. And so really what we want to do is we want to reduce the steps necessary to be able to um, consider something um, to have enough evidence and rigor behind it. And we also want to be able to spend more of our time and more of our sort of both academic resources and um, the funding resources that we have um, focused on no, we want to understand what it looks like in in, in we want to understand what it looks like in the context that the population is going to receive it. And so that's really what the paper is about. The paper is about how can we one reduce that timeline and do so by bringing um, elevating and sort of highlighting how we can do just as rigorous of um, if not more rigorous um, trials if we if we get them into the real world faster.
0: Yeah, it's so fantastic. You know, the uh, it's one of those conversations that I've had in conference hallways a million times, and I think the field is so thankful for you all writing this, because now we have something to cite, right? And that can oftentimes provide, you know, evidence or support when we're trying to make an argument. Shannon Dorsey pointed out when she was on the show that back in 2005, John Weiss and Amanda Jensen and Bryce McLeod wrote a really nice paper about when you're designing interventions to really be working on this, what they call a deployment focused model. So Mm -hmm. designing them for the real world, not designing them for efficacy per se. I mean, obviously you need effectiveness in the real world, but in including that in part of your design considerations. And so now your paper has the sort of second half of this which is not just designing for the real world um but um actually planning these real world studies from from the get go. Yeah. Uh, and I think it makes so much sense because if it's not going to be effective in the real world why even do it? We can come up with a, a highly efficacious study that could um that could either never be delivered in the real world or be far too expensive and that's what's right. what's the point of that? Yeah. That's great. Yeah.
1: But thank you. I don't think I was aware that that paper is getting a lot of traction. So that's nice. Well, to, that's it's nice getting to traction on
0: <laughs> with both of our listeners on the podcast.
1: Great. Wonderful.
2: There are <laughs>
0: both dozens of our of
2: listeners. Them. <laughs> dozens. Dozens, Mike. Um, so we're going to take another uh, hard turn and go into our quiz. Now, I don't know if you know we're doing a pop quiz. And you should know. So hopefully I don't want to put too much pressure on, but um, so we have, we have a quiz for you about a topic that we hope is near and dear to your heart and that you um, are well educated on. But I will say as a longtime participant in this podcast, we are not always great at targeting the difficulty of these um these quizzes. So I'm just going to give you a sort of a. It's okay, a
1: I can that. be I can be humble when I fail this quiz. Okay, let's let's
2: go. And so, so, if <laughs> I just want to say, you, you do get a prize if you win. The prize <laughs> is that I will write your next out of office message and to whet your appetite. Uh, apparently, I have somewhat of a reputation for irreverent out of office messages. So the last one I wrote for our last winner, uh, which was Danny Almirall. Um, oh, nice. Was um, okay. So here's I gave him two. Here's one of them. Uh, I wrote, I'm out of town for a short trip to the beautiful town of Evanston, Illinois to visit Northwestern University. It's called Northwestern because... Well, I don't know because it's actually right about the median center line of the population of the United States. It's neither <laughs> northern nor western, but somebody decided they would apparently just like to pretend that it's both because I guess that'll make it more interesting. I'm guessing I won't be finding that out during my trip either, so don't expect expect enlightenment on that front. Just expect a delay a delay in my replies to your email. So I ah uh,
1: lovely. Well, you know, it is Danny is a very hard act to follow, so yeah. we'll see if I can win like he yeah. did. So yeah, yeah, and
2: actually that's good. <laughs> (laughs) uh, For those of you who are not watching the video feed of our podcast, which is um, all of you, um, uh, that win was in quotes because the other thing to know is that the scoring on these quizzes is a little bit, as many of our measures, as you know, you're a measure developer, you know, it's um, not consistent with all the other ways we measure things in the real world. So you're going to get a variety of of response options. So I'll kick us off with the first one. Um, The first one, Eugene, Oregon and Seattle, Washington share a nickname. What is it?
1: Something about Emerald.
2: Yes, the Emerald what?
1: The Emerald Valley?
2: So close, close, close. We'll give you half credit, the Emerald City.
1: Oh yeah, well we are in the Emerald Valley. So yes. how's that? <laughs> oh, there you go.
2: Um and um uh, so you're scoring on that that was actually on a 4-point Likert scale from not at all to very much. I'm going to give you a somewhat for that. So nice work. Now there's a bonus. Um you could increase your score from a somewhat to a very much if you get get this one right. What is another nickname for Eugene?
1: tractown USA
2: Good. They the Mike wrote down Track City, but I think Track Town USA. That that sounds much more accurate. I'm sure that's it's what's on non- all Wikipedia. of the murals
1: around yes. town. So there you Fantastic. go. Fantastic. <laughs> all right.
2: Well, you just improved your score from a somewhat to a very much. All right, Mike, take the next question.
0: Very nice. All right. You're 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 proving your uh you're proving your residency in Eugene. That's great. So those of us who live in the Pacific Northwest know that Matt Gronig, who uh obviously is the um creator of The Simpsons, that Matt Gronig is from Portland, Oregon, and he drew in Inspiration for many of his characters and landmarks from the Pacific Northwest. We'd like you to name the real life ta- uh, tavern in Eugene that served as the inspiration for Moe's Tavern.
1: I did not even know such a thing existed. I thought you were going to ask me about the horse across the bridge that they have on the Simpsons. Like, I, like, uh, Ooh, tell so- us about that. Well, there's a stone horse like this guy. You know, like on The Simpsons when oh, it starts yeah, off? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that really is across the bridge when you go into Springfield. from oh, the statue. The nice. statue really is there. That's what I thought you were going to. And I thought I was going to know this answer. Moe's Tavern is, um, huh. I, I don't know. I'm going to have to go with Moe's Tavern.
0: Okay, I'll give you a hint. It does start with an M and it is three letters and it is somebody's name. See how well you know the taverns in Eugene?
1: Mm, apparently not well. Nope. Um, I know the breweries in Eugene. Yeah. Um yeah. I would have to say I don't know, Matt, just because we have Matt Court. So that's- so cool. Oh, good
0: try. Good try. It's Max's yeah. Tavern. Max's
1: oh, tavern. Max's Tavern. Okay. Nope. Sorry. I totally bombed that one. Okay. It's all right. All right.
2: <laughs> all right. Well, that was scored on a range of 23 to 240 hours, which comes from your paper <laughs> on the coins, which was the range of hours for the community development team that it took across sites. And I'm going to give you a score of 50 hours for that. Nice work. Nice work. Okay. Ken Kesey was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and a leader of the Merry Band of Pranksters, a group of hippies that traveled around the country in an old psychedelic painted school bus. What was the name of that bus and where is it currently located?
1: Oh, come on, you guys. I thought you were going to ask me about sometimes a great notion. And now we and now we go into the school bus. Um Uh, where is the school bus? I do not know. I have been to the, um, to the, to the home because it is now a little retreat center an artist retreat center. Uh, Um, I don't believe that there's a school bus parked out there though. Um, I don't know where the school bus is. I have no idea. I would say, um, I'm going to, I don't know, Florence on the coast somewhere. I have no idea. (laughs)
2: Okay, so our current understanding is that the bus's name is Further, and it's currently located at Ken Kesey's farm outside of Eugene.
1: Oh, no, that's where I was. That So that is where I was. That okay. is the retreat yeah. center so, I've yeah, been. Yeah,
2: so
0: my <laughs> understanding is that it's kind of being being reclaimed by the woods right now.
1: Ah, yes, okay. Yeah. Well, I have been there, and that is, I think I should get points for the retreat center, because that's well, what I was thinking.
2: Unfortunately, that was a binary question, yes, no. <laughs> and I think in the light of rounding, we're
1: going to have to give you a no for that one.
2: But that's okay, because right now your score is a very much plus uh, 50 hours plus no, so I think you're actually
1: doing quite well. Yeah,
0: there, there's a really fun documentary that came out, maybe seven years ago, about uh, about the Ken Kesey bus trip, where they, where they pulled together yes. all the old... All the old footage.
1: They play it on a, they play it there. They play it um, at the Ken Center. They have it there. Yeah, And and the Ken Center, it's definitely worth going to. It's, it's lovely. And um, there's, I mean, a lot of original stuff. You can see where they also got very creative um, during their time there with the floors and with the walls and with, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's a really nice place.
0: Oh, I have to check it out.
1: Beautiful garden.
0: Last question. Speaking of hippies. When was the last Grateful Dead show in Eugene? Was it A, June 17th, 1996? B, June 17th, 1995? Or C, June 17th, 1994? Or D, no one remembers, man.
1: I'm sure somebody has that logged. That's I like your I like your last one. Uh Gosh. Grateful Dead 95
2: maybe?: Oh,
0: good try. Good try. It was 1994, 1994.
1: It was there is 94. A bo- there is a
0: bonus question that you can maybe, you can maybe pull this out. Uh, was it Mike or Kevin
2: who attended that show?
1: Man, y'all have good poker faces, both of you, perfectly.: uh... I'm going to go with Kevin. oh oh Oh. darn it darn it darn it i thought because you asked the question you were trying to trick me
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's my it's my shaved head isn't it you're like no way he was at a grateful dead show no
1: i was more like he's (laughs) not gonna ask the question if he's (laughs) the one that's the answer all right guys so trivia do not you might want to ask me to participate in some sort of implementation trivia but like actual like yeah. Real world trivia night where we're like somewhere playing, you know, with beers. I am not the person you want on your team.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have to say this whole podcast is actually just screening for the next implementation conference. We're trying to develop our trivia team and it's very helpful <laughs> along these lines. <laughs> now I'll say I took this. I have two comments here. June 17th is my daughter's birthday. So that is very exciting. Um, to think that uh her, that there was her a, she was born <laughs> 25 years after the dead played in Eugene. So um, I took your scoring from zero to 63 from the Beck depression inventory and you did get uh, the year um, uh, off by just one year and you did get the date and month correct. So I'm going to give you a score of 20, which is just above the cutoff for moderate depression. I was not um, ready to
1: say I'm in the moderate range. Yes, you're in the All moderate right.
2: range. I will give you moderate. <laughs> um, so okay, congratulations actually with the score of moderately depressed, <laughs> no 50 hours and very much. You actually have one one hour prize so next time you go out of town or just Next time you just can't keep up with your email and you need a good out of office message, send me a short email and I will write you an out of office message uh, at no cost to you. Um, the only cost is really your self-respect and that of the people emailing you. Um well, that but is you can amazing. you can help so us I'll be reaching to out to that. you
1: in a couple hours. Okay. Absolutely.
2: I am <laughs> I have a quick turnaround on these things. That's the best way I can do is is fast. So we're just about wrapping up um the show here. We've been so um grateful to have you on. Uh, before you go, we' want to hear from you. What are two, one or two of the most important implementation science publications that you feel any budding implementation researcher should know?
1: Most important is hard um, because there are so many really, really important uh, pieces of work out there and so much amazing stuff done by our colleagues. I would say though, if you're budding and you're, and we're just sort of an emerging implementation scientist, where I often send people to, is for the name of it, The do you guys know what I'm talking about? The implementation um, uh, sort of primer that um, is put together by NCI. Um, and so that is what I, let me see if I can pull this up real quickly. It is called.
2: And that's the uh,
0: National Cancer Institute.
1: Right, I'm sorry, and oh, I should know this. This is not this is not that that challenging. It's called Implementation Science at a glance, and so this is a really really great resource. I have shared this resource with many many folks who are entering into the implementation science field. Um, And they have found it really useful. Folks who are writing grants for the first time, sort of understanding our language, understanding um, our need for frameworks, theories, models, the things that are really important to to IS um, scientists. Um, So I would say that this is anybody who is entering into the field. If if you're new to the field, um, then this would be absolutely one. Fantastic. Um,
2: I'll, I'll just, for everyone listening at home, I'll put that in the show notes. And so again, for any of you who is budding or emerging or molting even um, in, into implementation <laughs> science, uh, you'll be able to find that workbook in our show notes. Go yeah.
1: Ahead. And then this other one, I think is one that, you know, I'm sure some of your other guests have mentioned before, but it's the, again, for folks who are n- newly in the field, but the practical, the practical implementation science um, um, textbook that we have, the Moving Evidence into Action, Brian Weiner, Carl Lewis, and Ken Scherer. I think that this is a, again, one that. I've shared with many, many folks, um, it's now something that we have for all of our postdocs and for um, new folks who are entering into our our lab. Everybody finds it really easy. It's nice, pragmatic, gives some really, really complicated concepts, um, a fair shake um, understanding because I think the authors throughout, for all the chapters did such a really, really nice job of simplifying um, these really, really complex ideas.
0: That's great. That is a good good book. I I second that. And I'll go check out the NCI um uh document. I haven't looked at that before. Are, do you have any shout-outs to any special people in your work or personal life?
1: Oh gosh. Well, everybody, anybody who knows me knows that I will always do a shout out to Mr. Banksy, my um my dog, who um is uh our my co-pilot in all things implementation science and even not just my co-pilot in life. So always give a shout out to him, but um and I just think, I don't want to name anybody individually. I just feel like we are so incredibly fortunate. I am privileged that you guys even asked me to come on here um, and talk with you. I love our field. I feel so thankful that I got to be a part of the field when it was really first starting, because that means that our networks, as you guys know, they just go so much beyond any of our individual institutions or labs. And um, so I would just say, I mean, I guess I should do, you know, a big shout out to um, to the folks who got me into the field to begin with. So again, we're talking about John Landsberg, Enola Proctor, Brian Mittman, David Chambers, you know, those folks who, who really took the time and invested in um, what I had at that point, which was not a lot and really helped um, the, with their time and patience to help shape into what I'm hoping is now trickling down and helping others in the field as well.
2: Thanks. I have to just j- jump in. I'm especially impressed. You're the, probably the first guest we've had who has not mentioned Brian Weiner. So I want to give you bonus points uh, for that. Every time we ask that well, question, it's like a, she it's did, like she a broken did, record. It's, it's, it's she not already mentioned... that I don't.
1: I was going to say it's not that I don't love Brian, and I mentioned him with the book.
2: Yeah, she already no, mentioned him in the book. <laughs> That's true. He already. Is. Okay, so at some point we have to get Brian on and see who he yeah. wants to shout out because yeah. I'm tired of this network model all pointing in one to one particular <laughs> node. <laughs>
1: You know, Um, I also want to give just one, you know, I didn't mention because she was not my primary mentor, but also somebody who has just been so is um, Joe Kirshner. And so I also want to um, acknowledge her as well. She's been an IRI mentor of mine over over time, was not there when I um, was at the beginning, but um, we definitely have, have grown together over time. So I don't want to forget her either.
2: No, that's great. This list of acknowledgments really reflects I think your values of the importance of connection in the science yeah. and the importance of how how much we can learn from each other. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's just been a really uh enlightening and exciting conversation. Um how do if people wanted to to find you um, how would they reach you? Are you on social media? Should they just Google you and uh, and find you that way? What's the best way for people to reach out? You know,
1: currently right now with the with the transition that I'm very excited about, um, I don't think any of the above it actually is going to work. I do not do social media as anybody who knows me already is aware. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, if you Google me, it's probably going to have my old contact information. So if I could just say it out loud real quickly, is that okay? Yeah, um, go ahead. So my new email address for folks who are interested, it's first initial L, last name, S-A-L-D-A-N-A, all one word. So L Saldana at chestnut.org. And I am accepting emails there now live. um, So please feel free to to use that.
2: That's great. And just one quick note for any of the editors um, or associate editors listening at home, if you want to send review requests to Dr. Saldana,
1: you oh, can I'm send sure it to lisas
2: me. at oslc.org. That's again, lisas at oslc.org. For anyone who wants uh, uh, Lisa's help reviewing a paper, I'm sure she'll happily get back to you very quickly.
0: <laughs> All right, Lisa, it was so much fun having you on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, everybody. Thank you. No!
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you like today's show, post about it on social media, like, subscribe, share it with your friends and colleagues, or paint an old school bus with psychedelic colors, name it That Implementation Science Bus, and dump it on Ken Kesey's farm in Eugene, Oregon. If you didn't like today's show, research shows that it's probably because you skipped the planning phase. I'm on the social media platform, formerly known as Twitter, at ThatIS Podcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore Psych. All the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Lisa Saldana, we'll catch you next time.
1: I should should have met this with you guys, but I was having those really (laughs) shitty days because I actually am in a much better mood now than I was an hour and a half ago.